cold today. We knew this was coming, though, eh? You didn't pack away your warm stuff too soon. This always happens. This always happens. I mean, spring day's around the corner, and it is going to be the coldest day of the year. I remember when we were growing up in Natal, that portion of our childhood, the, the public pool always opened on the 1st of September. And they always harass and nag my mother to take us, please take us to the public pool, because it's, you know, it's not going to be warm, my boy. No, mom, the pool's open. So my mother being my mother would never, you know, the fact that she would take us anywhere and we didn't have to walk was amazing. So she'd drop us off at the pool, but she wasn't going to come back for many hours. And I'd dash into the pool and sort of glide across the ice of the pool and then sit there in the sun for hours trying to warm up. And I always think about that when it comes near spring because these little surprises are always around us, but it's always good to know that God is faithful in every season, faithful in every time of our lives, in, in what we perceive to be good and what we perceive to be bad. He is always good. And how amazing it is to hear the testimony of God's people who can say that God is good, even when it seems like he isn't. And he's always the focus. He's always the center. Uh, and we should realize that and live in that way. So as we continue to study God's word together, we're going to be reminded again this morning that God is the very center of all we are, all we know, all we understand, and all we seek to be and do for him. Our problems seem to arise... I'm open to correction, always, but don't forget that, always open to correction. But it seems to me that our problems arise in life most of the time when we are obsessed with ourselves and rather, rather than being obsessed with God. Because then when things happen that we don't like or don't enjoy, then we begin to doubt God's goodness. But again, God is good and he's always God. And the good news about the gospel of the kingdom of God is that he is the very center of the story. It's not about us. It's always about him. So as we look at again at the book of Acts this morning, we're going to see that God is the gospel. And this amazing, interesting, fascinating passage of scripture in Acts 13, 1 to 12, we will see that once again, God is the very center. My title is not... Uh, Original, it comes from Dr. John Piper. It's the title of a great book he's written, God is the Gospel. But I thought, how appropriate is that? Because we're always going to be drawn away from God, even as we read Scripture. And so we need to remember and be reminded that it is really all about Him. So may He be honored and glorified as we study His Word together and as we serve Him in the new week that starts today. Let me read with you Acts 13. 1 to 12. This is now moving into the second portion uh, of Acts and into the, into the missionary journeys of Paul. He becomes a central figure uh, in the narrative from this point on. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up, very interesting comment Dr. Luke gives us, had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, 
and soul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John, John Mark, was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar Yeshua, or Bar Joshua, or Bar Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right or righteous. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind. And for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. That happened to someone else, didn't it? Ringing your bells, deja vu there. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. See, he was an intelligent man, smart guy. When he saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. There are some fascinating parallels and incidents in this scripture, and we will attempt to draw them out, but all the while keeping God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the very front and center of his word. It's his word. And so it's only right that we do that. And whenever, I, whenever we come together uh, to worship the Lord, as we are blessed to do on, on his day, I'm always conscious of the fact that it's, this is God's time. We are God's people. This is his word. And we are called to live for his glory. So he's always and must always be the very center. So let's keep him there this morning and in this week. 
So firstly, we see from the text that God, and again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, specifically here, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, is the sender of the gospel. He's the one, he's the one that always sends people to spread his gospel. Richard Longnecker says, It is God who by his Spirit is in charge of events and sends out his missionaries. Notice what, notice the context. This is very, very important. So we have some of the main people who were there. And it says in verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so this was a time of earnest, fervent corporate prayer, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The work of the gospel, just an aside, is always ready to be done before we are ready to do it. The work of the gospel is always ready to be done before we are ready to do it. Moses, Lord. Noah, Lord. Isaiah, Lord. You see a pattern? The Holy Spirit sets them apart to the work to which, for the work to which he had called them. So the work is always ready. We're the ones who aren't. But the work is always there. And it's always God who's the sender because the gospel is always about his glory in saving nations, making enemies friends, making enemies his very family, his children. But notice here, too, that it is God who speaks to the local church about missions. It's God who speaks to the local church about missions. That They were there fasting and praying. That's, again, demonstrating a fervent desire to engage with the Lord. And in that context, in that attitude, they hear the voice of God. Again, it's a pattern. There's so many here. John on the Isle of Patmos, as we read the opening words of the Revelation, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was in in an attitude of deep, fervent, reverent worship, having experienced, and in the process of experiencing, excruciating torture that took him to the very edge of death. It was in that state of being that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when he received that grand vision that has been given to the whole of the church. Amazing. But God always speaks to the local church about missions. We shouldn't be waiting for God to speak to somebody else. You know, here am I, send him. Here am I, send her. It's always God speaking to us. And the local church should be very involved in the work of missions. It's not something we can afford to delegate to someone else. We work with missionary organizations and we thank God for them, but it's my conviction that they exist because the church, by and large, has failed in missions. And so God raises up parachurch, missionary organizations, because, and yes, we work with them, but I really don't see the pattern. Does God speak to a missionary organization in the book of Acts? He speaks to the local church through its leaders 
about his work. And he says, set apart for me. The local church is the outpost of the kingdom of God. We are the visible, tangible demonstration of the reign of God. And we should be the point of the spear in terms of God's work into our community and into our world. And so they are set apart, and that is recognized by the rest of the the church. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So they are recognizing, God, you've set these men apart. We've heard you speak, and we we are obeying that. We're excited about that, and we set them apart, and we commit ourselves to be in support of all that you are doing. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Can you see how it's always God, and specifically here God, the Holy Spirit, who is the sender. We hear a lot about church planting in our community and in our city, but I, again, I submit this to you. I'm open to challenge. Uh, But... I think a lot of it seems to me like franchising rather than church planting. Think about that. You know how franchises work. You've got to have the brand. You've got to have the logo. You've got to have the uniform. I don't think a lot of church planting is happening in Joburg, or for that matter in South Africa, but a lot of franchising. Different brands of church are setting up their, their local outlets all over the place. Churches have to take on their own identity. And we should stop trying to just reach the reached all the time. Reach the reached, reach the reached. The gospel is to go to the unreached, to the unchurched. And there are those in our own community and in our own country. We know about the eight unreached people groups in our own country. And they're still unreached because the church seems to be neglecting them altogether. But when God's involved... People respond, and they go beyond their context, beyond their culture, into other environments. And that might be across the road. I mean, we've got, we've got the United Nations just down the road. We've got Africa in South Africa. We can reach the unreached, and we should be doing so. But it's always God that sends, and we are answerable to him. As a fraternal of churches, we need to be working together to this end. God is always the sender. Secondly, God is the subject of the gospel. People are not the subject of the gospel. That's important to say because a lot of our language portrays that people are the subject of the gospel. God is the gospel and he is the the sender and he's the subject. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to meet them. What does it say? 
because he wanted to hear the word of God. God is the subject of the gospel. He wanted to hear the word of God, and the servants, those who are sent, respond to that. Actually, just before I move on to that, I just want to highlight a few passages of Scripture about God's sending. I think it's important. John 20, Jesus breathes on them and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I've thought a lot about those words because they're very important. As the Father has sent me, so, as, so, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's a few ideas about what that means. Taken from the text. That our, our purpose and our mission is a priority in the courts of heaven. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Our purpose and our calling is not secondary. We're, we're not, you know, oh, okay, I guess I'll send you too. You know, I'm, I'm low on staff. Let me, let me send, let me use the church. No, it's equivalent. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So our calling is as high and as awesome as the calling that Jesus received from the Godhead. That's not to say we're Jesus. That's not to say we do what he did. Only one can die. But Jesus does also say, John, you will do greater works than me. Greater, I believe, in extent, how the gospel spreads across the world. But this is the very high calling we have as a church, as the Father has sent me. It's not second rate or second grade. That calling, that purpose comes from God himself, and it's given to us. And then in the Isaiah 6 passage, again, Isaiah encounters the Lord, has this vision of God, and when he deals with his own sin, notice again in all these passages, there is fervent seeking after God. Fervent, desperate, seeking after God. And Isaiah has this grand vision, uh, the, the majesty and the magnificence of God, high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. The doorpost shook and the whole place was filled with smoke. He becomes aware of his own sin. Woe is me. Angel touches his lips, purges his lips with the coal. Then I hear the voice of the Lord. See, while he wasn't, before he dealt with sin, he didn't hear the voice of the Lord. Just, just a thought that challenges me. If I say, I've, I've never heard God speak, God doesn't speak to me. And let's move aside some of our theological objections 
and just focus on the word. Is it not perhaps because sin is blocking my ears? Then I heard the voice of the Lord, who will go, whom shall we send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Boom! Jeremiah. Jeremiah, high and mighty, high and lifted up, exalted, awesome, overwhelming, majestic, all-glorious, three-in-one God. Jeremiah. said me. It doesn't have to be around the world. It can be over the road. But are we available to be sent? And are we responding to God? Because if we do, if we understand that, then we will understand, as I've mentioned the second point, that God is the subject. It's God who sends, and it's God who's the subject. And we Coming back to this, we see that they were summoned by the proconsul who was the, he was the governing authority of that island. It, it, was, a, it was the highest position uh, that anyone could hold under Rome as a leader. And so he was, what was he, the governor, uh, president of the island under Rome, appointed by the Senate. Roman politics, like all politics, is very interesting. And there were some places that were under the reign of the Senate and some under the reign of the emperor. And, and Luke speaks about this, this office, the proconsul, which for a long time we knew nothing about this office. Uh, archaeologically, there was nothing to back it up. And so people started to say, oh, Luke's not a very reliable historian. He's making this stuff up. Well, they kept digging. Archaeologists, archaeologists kept digging, and they found a lot of evidence um, and actually this title, proconsul, and the name Sergius Paulus. There's a picture of a stone. Um, couldn't get it up on the screen, fortunately, where there it is. Sergius Paulus, proconsul. Exactly what we read of here. And he wants to hear the word of the Lord. And so they come and they speak. They share. They witness. But look what happens. Look what happens. And I'm, have you ever noticed this as you're witnessing to someone? There's, there's at, the, at just, the, at just the, the key time in presenting the gospel or having a breakthrough with someone, there's a distraction. Somebody walks in, phone rings, something happens. Watch it. He wanted to hear the word of the Lord. And so he sent for them. But verse 8, But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. There's, there's spiritual warfare taking place right there. And we should expect these distractions when we are witnessing and we shouldn't be discouraged or distracted 
by them. It's happened many, many times. And actually, use it as a part, another aside here. Use it as a positive when you're witnessing. Because when that distraction comes, you know you're getting close. You know you're getting close. You're getting close to a breakthrough with that individual or with those people. Don't be discouraged. and Don't be distracted. Stay focused. Have anybody ever experienced this? Yes, I see a few nods. Okay? Don't be discouraged by this. Actually expect it, because then you know you're getting close. If you're witnessing to someone and they start to react aggressively to what you're saying, don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged. You know you're getting close. If you've never experienced this, you can experience it today. Go witness to someone. Go witness to someone. And when you're getting to the point where their heart is starting to soften and God is doing his work, there will be a distraction. I promise you, more often than not, there will be a distraction. There'll be a big bang. There'll be a big noise on the road. Phone will ring. Somebody will come in. I was watching a video the other day. As I want to do, of people witnessing to Muslims and engaging with Muslims. And as this guy was very, an ex-Muslim, a believer in Christ, as he was witnessing to these two guys, and in getting to a crucial point in this, and it had been going for about 20 minutes, half an hour, people were in the distance, people were in the background, nothing going on, they were there. But the moment he got to the crucial point of showing them that Jesus is their Messiah, that Jesus is God, People walked by who recognized these guys and started to greet them, and the interruption happened. But the guy stuck to his task, and he carried on, and the door remained open. But here it is. Elimus, he's a, he's a sorcerer. He's, a, he's an instrument of evil that had somehow weaseled its way into the, the, the halls of power and was influencing the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. And now he's in panic mode because this man is going, the darkness is going to be exposed and he's going to lose his job. He tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Verse 9, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you, this is not work, eh? It's not politically correct. You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind. And here's another one of these parallels. The one who was struck with blindness in his arrogance against Christ and against the church is now saying to another obstacle of the gospel who doesn't respond in the same way, You're going to be blind, and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, instead of diverting and distracting him from coming to faith, it became the catalyst for faith. He believed and was amazed about the teaching of the Lord. When we keep Jesus, when, you, when we talk to each other about, and it's wonderful to shoot the breeze and to fellowship and, and just to talk about life, but when we get down to the business of the gospel and the things of Christ, there will be distractions. 
and we need to anticipate those and expect them. And Elymas got body slammed. He got taken on. I've come up with a new, for those of you who follow rugby and the recent events in rugby, um, you're ready and I'm talking about, I, I think he got feraled. I, I think he got feraled. He got body slammed and no arms tackle, uh, but he got knocked, blasted out of the way so that the gospel could continue and come to the man who was in charge of that community. Again, in terms of the gospel, we should be trying to reach all levels of society, but when we reach people of influence, they can reach their sphere of influence for the gospel. And so you'll see in the book of Acts how the gospel is presented in the life of Paul. Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, three governors, three leaders, they all get a personal audience with Paul, and tragically none of them respond to the gospel. Uh, but they are hurt, they hear the gospel, they're exposed to it, and given an opportunity to respond. So God uses Paul, and this is where his name changes, Saul and Paul. Now, Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Roman name. Remember, he's a, he's a citizen of Rome, and he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he has these two names, it wasn't uncommon. Some, many of us have middle names. Let's say something about us or something about our family. Uh, and, and people then were the same. So the shift now moves from, from his Hebrew name to his Roman name or his Greek name because he becomes the apostle, the missionary, to, to the Gentiles, to the Greek. But it's the same guy. He didn't change his name. He was just using another one of his names. There, there's a few people in the church who I've been calling them a name the whole for many years, because they told me that was the name. And then I find out that's actually not their name. It's a nickname. You, people live under pseudonyms, you know, incognito, right under my nose. But so it's not an uncommon thing. Um, his name didn't change. The emphasis shifted in his name, which was actually an indicator of the shift in his focus in terms of reaching the Gentiles. But another parallel because he was named after another Saul. Remember the Saul in the Old Testament? The first king of Israel? You tell me, how was he as a king? I'm just reading about his life, actually. How, how did Saul do as a king? Pathetic. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Pathetic. Shocking. And he had many opportunities to respond. But he rejected all of them. Just been reading again with David, this young shepherd boy, is playing the harp to calm Saul down. And Saul thinks, you know what, I've thrown my spear. I think I can stick him into the wall. Wow. If only, just something to think about as we pick up some of these parallels. If only the first Saul had responded to God like the second soul did. How different would Jewish history be? How different would it be? And again, we see, and as one commentator said, speaking of the gospel and the work of God and the lives of people, the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. The same sun 
that hardens clay melts wax. People respond differently. And Elymas was taken out, removed, taken out of the way so that the gospel could spread. But here's something very important for us in Africa. Because there is a lot of the occult and demonism in Africa that poses under the guise. Remember, Satan is it, uh, masquerades as an angel of light. Much of the darkness in South Africa and Africa comes through animism and ancestral worship and what are called the African traditional religions, the ATRs, which to me is a tragic title because the, the suggestion is, the, the, the sentiment is that we were here first before the gospel came. But we know, don't we, that the gospel got to Africa the same time it got everywhere else. Acts 8 tells us that with the, with the Ethiopian eunuch. And Romans 1 tells us that everybody, all people, have been exposed to the gospel. And by and large, what was the reaction? What does Paul say in Romans 1? They suppress the truth of God and replace it with a lie and begin to worship created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. So the occult is very, very real in Africa and is keeping a lot of people away from the gospel. And I never hear us talking about this. I don't hear us talking about this. And it's something we need to be very aware of because that's our parallel. That's what distracts people around us and in our community from the gospel. And many are involved in in ancestral worship and church attendance. But they're blinded so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. And we need to be vigilant, vigilant and diligent. It's hard to say those two words together. Vigilant and diligent in praying about and praying for and reaching out to people. You don't try Saul, Paul's like you're an enemy of, you know. That's not our first sort of response. But know about the spiritual warfare that is raging around us in our community at any given moment. And know that when we witness to people, there's a, there's a spiritual battle going on around them and sometimes within them. And the greater that battle and the more influence that person is by the battle, the more aggressive their reaction will be to the gospel. But don't be discouraged. There's a lot of work for us to do in this area, and we're not even, we're not even, we haven't even started in South Africa. We haven't even started with this. And it is a massive barrier. The ancestors don't speak to anyone. The ancestors are dead. It's demons posing as ancestors. And whenever I hear, and we, we, we do research at the college about this, at BTC, and whenever I hear the testimonies of people who become Sangomas and witch doctors, they'll say, well, a family member got sick, I got violently sick, I had this vision, I had this dream, and I was told if you don't respond to the call of the ancestors, you're going to be struck dead, you're going to die, your family will die, there'll be a curse. You see, it's always fear and manipulation. It's a, it's a common thing. But God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, 
and a sound mind, and we have to face the stuff head on, graciously, humbly, but very, very in, in, um, intentionally. We need to wake up to this. There are many kinds of distraction. People still chasing after Bigfoot. Bigfoot, if it appears, when it appears, that's a demon. UFOs, read Dr. Hugh Ross. I'm talking about distractions now from the gospel. People spend their lives chasing Bigfoot or citing UFOs. Read Dr. Hugh Ross, a Christian astrophysicist who has researched UFO sightings for years and years. Here's a book title. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Petra. Here's another book. I don't think we have it in the library. These just, you know, these just pop up when I'm lights. But here's the title. You won't forget the title. It's it's not the most mundane title. Lights in the sky and little green men. <laughs> That's Dr. Huros's title, the book about encounters. You know those close encounters, the first, second, third kind. We know about the third kind because there was a movie about that. But this is this all comes out of research. UFOs, close encounters with the first, second, or third kind are all demonic. They're all demonic. There's no such thing as aliens. That's a distraction from the gospel. Don't take my word for it. Read Dr. Hugh Ross. Lights in the sky. And? You got it. That's the title of the book. They're distractions. They're all demonic appearances. It's fascinating. Go, you can go on YouTube and just talk to Hugh Ross. It'll come up. All of these are distractions. What is distracting you and I? From responding to the sender and focusing on the subject. What, what are the distractions in art? Maybe they're not little green men. Maybe it's not animism. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's my hobby that, that keeps me away from church on a Sunday or away from a home group. It can be many different things. They're all distractions. But, as we see here, the gospel surges forward in spite of this violent opposition. Elimus is struck. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. And this is what I pray when I hear the call to prayer come and going out, wherever I am. When you drive by a mosque, pray this, that mist and darkness will come over the imam that is calling people into darkness and who himself is trapped in darkness. Mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. He could no longer be a distraction. He could no longer be an obstacle to the gospel. In fact, inadvertently, he became a bit of an evangelist because verse 12 says, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. Believed in Christ. He believed the message that Paul and Barnabas came to share. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Man, there's a lot I wanted to share with you, but we're heading into injury time already.
Let me, let me read a quote by J.I. Packer. And we start to wrap this up. And I suppose my conclusion, we could use, we could use another point to say God is the savior. He's the sender, he's the subject, he's the savior. Speaking of this distraction and the distractions that often overwhelm us in life, J.I. Packer says, the faith is everywhere attacked by powerful instruments of war. The faith, the gospel, the message of Christ is everywhere attacked by powerful instruments of war. And yet, God confirms it in the minds of many people. Incredibly, he makes faith overcome a thousand obstacles. Praise God for that. I'm always talking about Iran because because it's such a fascinating country and what's going on there at the moment. Islam is in free fall, it's in collapse. I heard, I watched, heard another report the other day about Islam in Iran by ex-Iranians um, or Iranians who are no longer in the country. It's estimated that 50,000 of the 75,000 mosques in Iran are closed. Fifty thousand of the seventy-five thousand mosques in Iran are closed. Why are they closed? I thought Iran was Muslim. No, people are turning away from Islam in their droves in one of the most Islamic countries where Sharia is the law. I mean, Sharia means law. So if we say Sharia law, we're saying the same thing. But where Sharia is the law of the land, and remember what one of those pastors said, um, I think I mentioned it, that uh, the good thing about Islam in Iran is that people can see, are seeing what Islam is really about. And they're turning away in their droves. So even the greatest distractions. Mao Zedong, in Chinese, in, in the history of the gospel in China, many of the foremost leaders of the church in China consider Mao Zedong to be one of the greatest evangelists ever. Yeah. Somebody was telling me, actually Ron Boyd McMillan spoke here a number of years ago over Easter, and he mentioned the story that he, he went to meet with some church leaders in, in China, and as he got to the place, they said, oh, you're just about to join us. We're drinking a toast. Come drink this toast with us. And he said, well, who are we toasting? And they said, Chairman Mao. Why are we toasting that despot, that dictator? Because he was the greatest evangelist China's ever known. Because he showed them what atheism and communism is really about. And the people turned to Christ. The biggest church in the world now is the, is the cell church, the home church in China. Over 100 million. Over 100 million. You see how God turns obstacles? So friends, let's not be discouraged. The faith is everywhere attacked by powerful instruments of war. Just as Elimus tried to disrail it. Just as many times as happened in our lives if we just stop and think about it. And yet, God confirms it in the minds of many people. Incredibly, he makes faith overcome a thousand obstacles. Praise God for that. 